Welcome to episode 446 with my guests Anthony and Brigetta. There is no perfect pregnancy, birth, or parent, and yet we rarely hear the real stories, and it's time we speak up. Mom, actress, and advocate Tatiana Ali hosts Unspoken Stories, a new podcast from March of Dimes, featuring real stories detailing everything from the joys of parenthood to what happens when things don't go according to plan. Listen to Unspoken Stories for free wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting unspokenstories.org. I am Paul Gilmartin. I am back from vacation. Uh, some of you were a little confused why there was four or five best of episodes uh, in a row. It's because I decided to take the month of July off to uh, to recharge my battery. And of course, I got a bronchial infection the last week of my of my uh, vacation. And so, uh, if I sound sick, still, I'm pretty sure I do. Uh, I'm still still getting over that. Um, but it was nice to have some some time off, and I hope you guys enjoyed those uh, reruns. There's uh, really there's no other way to call it. Best of there were reruns, but they're great episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, I uh, I really recommend checking it out. Um, there's something I love about not having to leave the house. Uh, the familiarity of having the same therapist week in, week out, month in, month out, year in and year out. And uh, she's helped guide me in so many, so many amazing ways. Uh, if you've never tried it, uh, consider checking out. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with the betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Before I read a couple of surveys, actually, I want to do that first. I'm going to read a couple of happy moments. This is from a woman, actually she's a teenager, uh, she calls herself a raging pansexual. In her happy moment, she writes, My boyfriend kissing my self-harm scars and telling me that I am beautiful. It's really sweet. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy uh, in his 60s. And he calls himself should be mad, instead just sad. Interesting name for a happy moment. He's, 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 uh, he's covering both sides of the bet. And he writes, uh, Last Sunday, a gay family was two pews in front of me, so I had an hour to spy on them, which is great to start with. One dad had the metrosexual look of an urbanite from the Far East. The other dad had the swarthy good looks of someone from the Arab world. The daughter, about three, had the alabaster skin and blonde curly hair you see in those old British children's books. During the final hymn, she put her hand on the small of her dad's back and kissed his hip so lightly that he didn't notice. Then she put her tiny hand in his, and he kept it there as we finished the final stanzas. The small beauty of that familial moment almost brought me to tears. That was the same morning Trump unleashed his racist tweets on America and doubled down for days. When that ugliness got too much, I recalled that lovely improbable family. Thank you for that. I passed by this billboard the other night as a liquor billboard and the 
title of it said, Perfection is Forever. I think it's like a bottle of tequila or something. And I was sitting in a stoplight looking at that billboard, and I thought, what is it that I hate about that so much? It has nothing to do with, with liquor or the fact that I don't drink anymore. I don't have any particular feelings around liquor. It's, it's the... It's combining two of the most unhealthy concepts in our battled minds as human beings. The concept of perfection and the concept of forever, which are, there's such corrosive, toxic concepts that we torture ourselves with. The idea that we need to be perfect, the catastrophizing of things as being never or always. How many times have our attempts at perfectionism completely backfired on us? Have we ever sought perfection in a friend? Never. And yet, for some reason, we feel like we need to be perfect for everybody around us. I personally have struggled with fear of making mistakes and trying to be extraordinary my whole life. And I usually just wind up working myself up into a depression and then having to take a nap. There's so many times that I've gone to uh, walk out to the garage to, to woodwork, and then the idea of making a mistake and ruining a piece of wood fills me with so much dread and anxiety that I just wind up coming back in the house and laying down and taking a nap. So many times when I've been doing music, I'll be having a great time playing something on guitar, really getting into it, and then I'll say, oh, I want to record this, and I'll hit the record button, and I completely freeze up because I've, in that moment, I lose that idea of just playing for the joy of playing, and I suddenly anticipate that somebody's going to hear this, and it needs to be perfect for them because if if they like it, then I'll get love from them. And I forget that mistakes are really where it's at. Failure, loss, pain, those are that's that's the gym for our character. That's where we get our insights and our spirituality or from 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 when we stumble. Yet there, I have this ridiculous need and I think a lot of us do to want to be perfect. You know, when I was doing stand up, I learned more from my rough shows than I did from my great shows because it made me really search every nuance of what I was doing. What what might I have done better? It made me rethink things. It made me turn things upside down and inside out and look at it from all different angles. Think about who are the most interesting artists. I mean, there's a reason that Van Gogh wasn't prom king. You know, the kid in the corner is the one that generally is going to make more interesting, insightful art uh, than the captain of the football team. Perfection, the idea of perfection as a goal, sucks the fun out of things. Perfection is the opposite of playful. Have you ever heard a kid say, I played perfectly? But for some reason, so many of us become slaves to perfectionism and and 
assign this doom to the idea of making mistakes. One of my very first memories as a kid is being in kindergarten, coloring the wrong color, looking around and seeing that I'd made a mistake and sobbing uncontrollably. And I remember the teacher like calming me down and and being a little like, what is with this kid? Like she was kind of calming me down, like laughing as she was calming me down. Like it it was so ridiculous. At, at five, I knew that I was ridiculous. I think that billboard bothers me because perfection is such an illusion. It's such a fantasy to keep us occupied from our sadness, our, our feelings of emptiness, our feelings of disconnection. It's just, it's a, a mirage that if only we can be enough or do enough, we will feel peace. But we don't need to do anything or be anything to be worthy of love. We, we just are. We just are. Just being on this planet, we are worthy of love. But I couldn't let people love me unconditionally until I stopped trying to be exceptional and let them see my flaws, my pain, my mistakes. And I gave them the chance to still love me. And that vulnerability, that risk I took, when that was met with love, it felt amazing. And it was healing. And all I had to do was be me. But it's so terrifying, the idea that our authentic selves might not be enough. So fuck forever and never and always and shoulda and coulda and woulda and fuck perfection. It is just a rotten mirage. It's the sick baby of conditional love. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And, and we're, we're just, just all in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I want out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with a uh, longtime comedy uh what would, we, what would we be considered contemporaries? You started before me back in Chicago, but uh, we've worked together, uh, Anthony Griffith and uh, his wife, and psychologist, uh, Dr. Brigetta Travis Griffin. Um, you have your, your PsyD, correct? PsyD. That yeah. meant that I was a consumer of the research as opposed to a producer of the research. Yeah. Similarly to my retail therapy issues. Yeah. <laughs> Consumption is important. Hey, man, the, the surveys we do on this show, shopping addiction is real. Not yes. saying you have one, but it, it is real. It's for real. It's yes. for real. So, yes, PsyD. Yeah. PsyD. And, and QVC is the skid row right. for, for the shopping addict. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. I decided why not generalize the whole cons consumption thing and just get the PsyD, you know, just skip the PhD. That's an additional year that I would miss out on the retail therapy. So <laughs> I just thought I'd save myself a few thousand dollars. Yeah. 
it's it's great to reconnect uh, with you guys. Here. It's been a, it's been a long time. Yeah, uh, and you co-wrote a book called Behind the Laughter that I just finished, a comedian's tale of tragedy and hope, and you guys co-wrote it. And uh, there's so much in it, starting with your childhoods and then you meeting and the birth of your daughter and then Anthony's sickness and throughout the whole thing is kind of this th- through line of how do you two maintain a relationship, mm-hmm. get through it together mm. and not want to kill each, give, kill each other <laughs> or mm-hmm. give up. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. or lose faith, yes. and that's uh, one of the things that I found really b- beautiful, and sometimes hard to com- comprehend. Through, okay, but, but we'll get okay. to that we later. We can talk about it. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Anthony, talk about your childhood uh, a little bit. Um, I started in the projects on the west side of Chicago, and uh, my mom was very. Right now, she she was the only one because my father at the time, my biological father was uh, in the military. And um, so it was just us three, my brother, myself, and my mom. And um, she was my inspiration. She was my my guardian. She was my protector. And um, uh, came from uh, um, 13 in the family. So that generation where they just had kids. To have kids and uh so she was scrappy yes. she was a survivor yes she, herself she yes. knew how to uh get by yeah because one of her things she would always tell us was you know i'm a lady um i'm dainty but please please don't push me to the back against the corner because i will come out like a cat yeah. uh because from because she's from the project so she's like you know I, I'm quiet. I'm uh, I'm soft-spoken, but I will strike back and strike back hard because um, she knows that you probably would only get one time to really fool her. Yeah, there there are a few things scarier than when a nice person explodes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, Forgot to tell us about your childhood. Your mom was vastly different. Vastly different. And I think that's the awesome part about this book is that you have these two distinct um, childhoods and, and they abridged in some fashion. And you wonder, how did those two get together? Because we all come with baggage. You know, a baggage could be handheld or it could be a backpack. I had two handheld and a backpack when mm-hmm. when I uh uh, met this one here, Anthony. But um, I would say raised, I wouldn't say nurtured, but I was raised uh, in the home of a teenage mom. And my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, were also teenagers when they married. Isn't that something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my parents had a shotgun wedding. We called it shotgun weddings back mm-hmm. then. And so my mom, uh, she didn't have the tools um, to use a cliche, uh, she didn't have the tools to parent. Um, but I think there was some predisposition to being a little, you know, a little on the nutty side. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily because of exposure that she didn't have these, these skills because sometimes <clears throat> just, um, 
evolution gives you the ability to be able to protect that which you give birth, mm-hmm. um, to which you give birth. But she didn't have that. That was void. Yeah, that sounds like an understatement. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, based, it is. Based on what I read <clears throat> in, the, in the book. Yes, um, yes. I wasn't a crier. No, we don't cry. You, you get your ass beat if you think you want to cry. And when you say we, you mean in your family? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, me was the we. I had yeah. to have the self-proclaimed mentors that my mom didn't know about, right? So yeah. I'm, I, I was raised as an only child under, under uh, my mom. But uh, my grandparents were the ones who really, really nurtured me, you know. Um, but when I say we, I mean me, myself, and I. Mm-hmm. You didn't express emotions. Give us give us a couple of vignettes of your mom's behavior that will kind of uh, paint a picture. Of- sure. Um, so let's say something as nebulous as um, asking a question one too many times. Her judgment, not mine. I didn't think it was two too many times, but one too many times, which meant the first time was too many. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Asking a question and not being able to understand the answer and to dare to ask for clarification. Mm -hmm. And then that what would ensue after that would be um, what kind of stupid question is that to ask me? Don't you don't you know? Can't you figure it out? Go fucking look it up. Mm. That kind of stuff. Right. So what do you do? Was it what does a child do? They internalize it. Well, I I don't want to make her unhappy. Well, hell, she's always unhappy. How do Mm -hmm. how do I walk on those eggshells? And so I went to a uh, private school, all girls school. I escaped uh, via the debate team and I would come home with these uh, awards and these trophies and so forth. And I remember similarly to the one of the last times I saw her. Uh, when I walked in the home, I knew some stuff was up because you can just smell it in the air. Mm-hmm. You can just smell it. When you live with a person who has um, uh, emotional eruption and kind of borderline behaviors, you kind of just can tell. You can put mm-hmm. your finger up to the wind and go, oh, it's going to be one of those days. Almost like the the stillness before the tornado. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So perfectly put. Yes, that's what it felt like. The air. That's right. The air was still. You couldn't even hear yourself breathe. The air was so still, right? Uh, so I sauntered into the uh, bedroom, and at this time, uh, she was with her second, I think her second or third husband, yeah? And uh, he was also a refuge for me as well because he was a distraction, mm-hmm. which was great. Uh, so I sauntered into the bedroom, and I, you know, showed my award, and she was in one of those funks. So I'm thinking, well, perhaps because I've, you know, I've showed, I've shown her that I can do this. This is, look at, this is an accomplishment. She said, what did she say, honey? Get the fuck out of the room. No, nobody cares about that shit. And I just thought, well, where's the balcony so I can toss myself over real quick? I'll show her, you know, because in Chicago we had back porches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought, I just want to just, just, just be void of this feeling of rejection. And I saw, I saw my flaccid stepfather not say anything like, why would you say that to her? That's not okay. Oh, bridge. Oh, let me see. None of that. No agency whatsoever. Mm. No advocacy. 
And so those were the things I had to deal with. So walking on eggshells, um, and even with the physical abuse, you just didn't know when it was coming. Sometimes she would wake me up and, and just, you know, have a mood. Yeah. So, uh, the beatings were bad. You didn't know when they were coming. They, they were, we call them slave beatings. You know, there's, uh, this term we use whippings. Mm-hmm. And in certain cultures, uh, that was the go-to thing to do. And we know that you know, generationally, those were the tools that we've carried from our ancestors for valid or invalid reasons. Well, our culture uh, was quick to find the switch as opposed to kind of talk about it and process it and and use active listening skills. They didn't have time for all that. What yeah. was it? Do as I say and not as I do? Yeah. Sometimes I felt like... um uh, what was that guy's name in the Matrix? Uh, what was this? He's so fine. Neil? Yes, Lord Jesus. That's what <laughs> Keanu I. Keanu Reeves? Keanu. Hallelujah, Keanu. If you're listening, baby, call me, okay? I'm right here. <laughs> Anthony's shaking his head. <laughs> so at times, you know, because it was always a double bind with my mom. Mm-hmm. You couldn't, you couldn't win for losing a catch 22. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this, I lived in this world of double binds, right? And so sometimes I felt like Neo, where I was just doing the matrix, and it's like, oh, here it comes. Let me just just move over this way. And then I felt like um, like a sprint runner in the blocks, always ready, always on ready for the gun to go off. So you can imagine what my quarters all levels were like, right? Because oh I was always on alert, always on alert. If, if you could go back and talk to yourself at any age, mm-hmm. what would you say and what do you think little you would say in response to that? I would validate, first of all, I would validate little me. And, and Anthony brought this up years and years ago. You know, you're, you're, you, you have another opportunity to kind of protect that one that didn't have that agency, but I would go back and I would validate and I would, uh, I would just be real with the little me and, and say, she's a bitch, isn't she? She's a bitch. I would just want a grown person to say the words that I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would really, really need to hear it's not your fault. It is not your fault. It is, it is okay. Yeah, you don't deserve that. Yeah, she's mean. That's not okay. That is not okay. There is no excuse for that. I would want to hear that. And what do you think little you would have said or done? Mm, I think little me probably would have uh, been able to, better able, better able to give it back to the owner from which it came mm-hmm. instead of internalizing it. Yeah, Because right. I, I took it on like a bucket right right? it wasn't mine to take on right but i took it on i took it on do you think you would have said anything to the older you that brought the truth um the older the older me's uh the older and i say me because there was a village that i Mm -hmm. i you know adapted to um but i i would have uh, found refuge with the older me's and i would have been able to articulate my thoughts a little better Mm -hmm. without feeling judged um uh, I would have been more apt to 
talk more because one of the punishing things, the punitive things in my household was that uh, there was emotional withdrawal, right, mm-hmm. and emotional neglect. The silent treatment. Oh, the silent treatment. The, the worst. The worst. It's like just you'd almost the, rather be yelled at than, yeah. than just feel the silent treatment. The silent treatment. Mm-hmm. Anthony, give us some snapshots from, from your childhood that you think kind of paint a picture of who you were, how you viewed yourself or the world? Um, well, my mom was, uh, inspired me to do anything. I can remember, you know, I had a great imagination. Yeah. And you had to code switch too. You had to do a lot of code switching. Yeah, because yeah. I had white friends mm-hmm. that I took up stamp collecting and all that stuff, everything mm-hmm. that the white friends would do. And I go to my friends who were black and they would just go look at me like I was dumb. Like right. that's, you know, I know, I remember, um, having a pajama, no, not pajama, sleepover. 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 And the brothers made fun of me because I brought my homework and they were like, Griff, come on, man. What, what doesn't everyone? Dude, I'm white. I would have made fun of you. <laughs> right. That's that's <laughs> fucked up and pathetic. Right, right, right. <laughs> you, Don't blame it on the brothers. Yes, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> All the sleepovers I've been to, nobody ever brought their homework. That that boy does that paint a picture. That is fantastic. Yeah. So you guys meet and you decide to have kids. Mm-hmm. And yeah. tell us about Brittany. Who's going to start crying? <laughs> he's, he's the crier. I am the crier. So uh, when she was born, she was a preemie. Mm-hmm. And so I was in recovery and I heard the nurses say, oh, she's so cute. She's so cute. And then I heard the doctor's voice kind of somber. Now, here again, I'm I'm the type of person who can kind of read mm-hmm. energy even if I don't see a person. And I thought the doctor's intonation sounded a little somber. And so the nurse said, I remember her saying, oh, that's why she was doing that with her tongue. Because even when she was born, honey, she was she was protruding her tongue. And and there's a reason for that. But um, they, um, you know, I held her and so forth. And then we went to our room and they said, well, we just want to do a few tests want to do a few tests. Just the most precious little thing you ever want to see. Look just like her father. This and, one right and the, here. And the thing about it is Hey, that, you got a compliment. Did you see how he stepped on it? Did you see that? Hey, you won't get another one for another leap year. And so. the, the thing is, I I was a preemie as well. That's so, right. And That's I didn't right. find out until um, uh, they told us that the doctor the test did, came back. Yeah. yeah. The, so she had an extra chromosome. So we call it trisomy 21. Mm-hmm. And I call it trisomy to love. Right. Oh, so really? um, <laughs> that translated to uh, Down syndrome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she had an extra chromosome. She had an extra pair on the 21st chromosome. Yeah. Trisomy and 21. I told yeah. my, my mom and she said, well, she was always cool. She said, what did the doctor uh, say? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, she's a preemie. And that's when she said, well, you were a preemie. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, she was born like five pounds, five ounces. And, I, and she said, you were born five pounds, five ounces. 
Mm-hmm. So um, I said, yeah, well, they said, well, she might have some developmental delays. And my mom said, well, you didn't walk for 14 months. Mm-hmm. So my mom never would never let me have a pity party. Right. So she just said, take her home, mm-hmm. love her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, we'll take it's, it one day at a time. Both parents, believe it or not, can you believe, what, what do we call the other one? Um, Annie Wilkes. We called the other one yes. Annie. We won't say her real name. But even Annie Wilkes, um, that was a character, a Stephen King character. Misery. Oh, okay. That was in lost Misery. On me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Misery. she was the one that kept him uh, bed bound. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, even Annie Wilkes, um, she she uh, she really took took charge as well. So she was very accommodating when it came to my daughter. Yeah, very accommodating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And share some of what uh, Brittany's personality was. Oh, was my like. goodness. She had her dad's personality, as far as I'm concerned. Had great sense of humor. Great right. sense of humor. Yeah. They they were buddies. They were like, <laughs> they were road dogs, right? Because after a few months, I went back to work. But she had a great personality. She loved cuddling. Uh, she loved the tactile touch. I love the smell of her, you know, every baby. You know, how can you not love the smell of yeah. them? And I took her to yeah. comedy clubs. Yeah. The wait staff would watch her mm-hmm. while I, I did my set or I would bring her on stage. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And you put her in the uh, in a little crib at Zany's in the, in the corner <laughs> yes, one night, yes, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, everyone adored her. Great she personality. So much, yeah. so much hair. She had so much hair. <laughs> yeah. And at times, you know, we just made a deal because I was like, because every time I would try to comb it, she would freak out. And I just said, okay, we'll make a deal. I won't touch it. You don't ask it to be touched. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let mom deal with it. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And she loved to eat. Oh, my goodness. Always eating. She would eat until she passed out. Yeah, she would fall asleep (laughs) eating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so when did they they let you know uh, about About the Down syndrome? No, about her complications. Okay, yeah. So um, um, let me just backtrack a little because um, when uh, we went to Social Security, um, we found out that she qualified for that. And we knew nothing. I, I didn't know anything about Social Security. What is that? Is that aid? I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Do I do I pay it back? And uh, she had to be evaluated by uh, a doctor. And now I know because I now evaluate children in that same situation. And I just that was my template for what I would never do. And so this doctor said, he said, well, you know, she has uh, holes in her heart and she has an extra chromosome. So if she doesn't uh, end up having Alzheimer's, she will die of, of uh, cancer. These kids usually get leukemia. So it, and, you said, and you said it's just matter of fact. Uh, just like, matter of fact. And I wanted to sock him in his nuts. But remember, that was my indoor voice, and I mm-hmm. just internalized it because authority, 
uh, figures knew better. They apparently knew better, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I just re- that was emblazoned in my spirit. You know, he just said these three things, right? And so uh, it was, I think, just after her second birthday. And he was doing, um, he was on the road a lot. And I think he was doing Star Search or something like that. And we went out of town and we were in California. And uh, Brittany was left with my grandmother. And I remember I came home early. Anthony still had to uh, do the road thing because he was winning on Star Search, which was great. But I had to fly home. And I remember my grandmother said she's so lethargic. Oh, my goodness. Um, she doesn't she doesn't want to eat anything. She doesn't want to take uh, uh, fluids. She just she doesn't have any, you know, enough energy to uh, crawl. Uh, she just lays in the middle of the floor and she says, I think you need to get that checked out. And uh, so I took her to uh, her pediatrician and he was he was a he, he was excuse me, I won't say the word, but he was a nutsack, too. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. But that was one time I would sk- you would you go so far as to say he was a fuck face? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the tier above nutsack. Thank you. You said it. Thank Some you. Some people will put douchebag in between the two, but those are mostly Canadian people. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, he was, I know he didn't resonate with me. I'll put it that yes. way. So he didn't tell me what I felt I needed to hear. And so uh, I waited a few days until Anthony came home. And then we took Brittany to the uh, children's, hospital. children's hospital in Chicago. And she didn't come out for three months. She didn't come out for three months. So they tried to get a vein and uh, it kept rolling and yeah, it was, rolling the, it was veins. just terrible. It's just to, to see a child who can't articulate her words, but you can just see the look on her face like, mommy, why are they doing this to me? And they sent in all these doctors and these interns and everyone said, oh, we, we can do it with this special needle. And so again, the rage came out. For me, uh, enough for me to walk away, not for me to curse them out or anything like that. And then I said, I told my husband, I said, you just, I just can't sit here and watch my daughter be tortured. But I knew they had to get blood. Mm. Paul, I knew they had to get blood, right? What a helpless feeling. Oh, what a helpless feeling. And so uh, eventually, um, I forget, that they some surgeon came down and they got some blood and so forth. And I said, well, in the interim, uh, you know, what's going on? You know, because they don't tell you stuff unless you ask, and then you have to know what to ask. And I now know what to ask. But back then, just as a young person who was just in her 20s, um, they said, um, they said, well, you know, it could be it could be sickle cell. And I said, so what else could it be? You know, I at least had the wherewithal to, you know, be assertive enough to ask an authority figure mm-hmm. what else could it be. And they said, well, you know, the other rule out would be leukemia. Well, I was hoping for sickle cell at that point. Right. Yeah. And uh, then they um, they said, well, we're going to, you know, um, she needs some blood. She's lost a lot of blood. Um, her platelets were low. That's yeah. what it was. And she was she was orange, to say the least. Yeah, when we, we got in, the first thing the doctor said was, 
How long has she been on? Yes. So her platelets were just terribly low. And uh, so she had a blood transfusion. We didn't know it at the time, nor did the doctors appreciate that because she had uh, some cardiac issues, some holes in her heart, the volume with which they gave her that blood, her heart couldn't handle it. Mm. So she went into heart failure. Right. And his mother caught it. Because his mother came to the hospital and she said, why don't you all just go out to, you know, go out to get Mm -hmm. something to eat because you've had a, a, you know, a a long day. And uh, she says, how long has she been pulling in her diaphragm like that? That doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we told the nurses and they said, "Okay, we'll we'll check it. We'll check Mm -hmm. in on it. We'll check it. And then we came back and then his mother said, I don't like this. I don't I don't like the way she's trying to pull in and then come to find out she was having a cardiac arrest. Oh, my God. And so uh, they said we have to take her down. They didn't say that she was having a cardiac arrest, though. Right. They said, oh, well, let us take her down for some observations. And in the meantime, this one's what NAP napping. Again, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I wasn't getting any sleep. <laughs> I wish you just chilling. the looks that Anthony is shooting me. <laughs> so they brought her up. I mean, they came up and they said, listen, um, she's she's not doing well. You know, the volume of blood and so forth. Uh, her heart, little heart couldn't take it. So um, when we finally saw her, she was strapped down. Her arms were strapped. She had a cannula in her nose and she had that look like, what the hell is going on here the look right and um they said you know she she does they confirm that she that did have leukemia and they said we need to start treatment right away that these are your options and so forth so we weighed our options we prayed on it and so forth and we decided to to just go on with the chemo and they said but um it just w- really wouldn't be ethical for her to be strapped down like that because when when they tried to untether her she would do what mm-hmm. one two-year-old would do would and pull, pull her, off her face oh my goodness yeah she would pull all her tubes out and so forth so um they thought the best thing to do was to put her in a drug-induced coma which is where she was for about two months yeah mm-hmm. so she had her chemotherapy mm-hmm. whilst in a drug-induced coma. That's, yeah, that's so pabulon. Yeah. I, I, I want to be able to cover as as much as we can sure. uh, in the time that we have. And sure. I want to be able to get to uh, Anthony's battles with, with his health. Ah, um, yes. in, the, in the book, it's interspersed between these battles with Brittany's health. Um, your career, yes. Anthony, at that point is is taking off the uh, tonight show back then when it was still hosted by johnny carson was if you could combine youtube instagram twitter all of those things those were all packed into the power that the the tonight show had it your your life could change overnight um and you started doing the tonight show and they loved you and they started having you back on and off stage your life is falling apart you're your baby is battling for her life. Talk yes. about what it was like inside your skin and your brain. Like during the day, we would administer to her. Uh, first, to start at home, we would have to learn how to do the all the chemo and, um, and CPR. CPR, yeah, all that stuff. And then 
when it got a little bit more difficult, she was in the hospital. And so... She was a frequent flyer free, of uh, Children's free, Hospital yes, of uh, Los yes, Angeles. Los yeah. So, so you had moved here from Chicago by that point. Yeah, because she had, she had, she had went into remission mm-hmm. while in Chicago. So we said, okay, now we can go ahead and move to L.A. So, talk about the last time that that you guys were with her. Yes, the last. If time. you're if you're comfortable, I don't I don't want to push you, but. You know, in the book, it's so heavy, but also so complex with like these veins of beauty also running through it, which I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I attribute to the underlying faith mm-hmm. yes. that, that you guys, because you're you're both Christians. churchgoer mm-hmm. yeah. Christians, mm-hmm. and you guys, as long as I've known you, walk the walk the walk. So share if you could. So it it got to be routine that um, I would take the show, r- rush to the children's hospital, and we would watch the show together in her room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at that time, all the kids in the cancer ward were bald. And it was interesting because Brittany, because all the kids were bald, she's going... No big thing. We're all bald. Right. And um, and we would see some kids that would be going through this uh-huh. by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, no visitors. Yeah. And this, so one, the last time was um, I, I got up and I went and I kissed her and I was like, um, I'm going to check the mail uh, at home. So when I went home to check the mail and stuff. It's when she uh, passed, but um, Brigetta was still there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, the children's hospital, our ward was became our home, our sanctuary. That's right. Yeah, because you were there pretty much around the yes. around mm-hmm. the clock. Yes. And thank God for children's oh hospitals. Yes. Thank God yes. for children's Nurses hospitals. are angels walking on this earth. Yes. And every day that you would show up, they would be cleaning out mm-hmm. someone's yes. room. Yes. Mm-hmm. A kid had had passed away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you share that you never knew on any given day if that was was going to be her. I can't imagine what what that would be. Mm-hmm. Especially when be she like. was given uh, when we were given the prognosis. Yeah. That uh, just prepare. And uh, I think my husband said, prepare for how long? And then they said, well, it could be any time. Well, how long is any time? And they, we finally eked out of them two to three weeks. Yeah. So, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm a lover of retail therapy, but that one, that one sucked. That one sucked. It, it blew to high heaven. Um, yeah, to have to shop for a child that you knew that her home going, uh, that yeah, every 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 attire, every accessory rather she she that you donned on her would be what she was buried in. Her shoes, her underwear, her her uh, you know her headdress, her jewelry. Just, who who wants to go on a shopping spree like that? Oh no, that was that was that was yeah. So when you're given that prognosis, you have to suck it up. And and make every single second count. 
that's what you do. And how do you do that? You you uh, relish in those moments. You relish in those moments. And I must say there were moments when I would just pray that she would just pass away in her sleep. Yeah. Right. Um, that's ideal. You know, um, when I had my own <laughs> thoughts of of uh, meeting her in heaven, I you know, I want to be cute. If I was going to go out, I want to look cute. Make sure my toes, my <laughs> you know, give me my petty, my mani petty. I always tell my husband if I don't make it out in any way, shape or form for whatever befalls me. What do I tell you? Make sure what? My um Eyebrows. Eyebrows, sorry, yes. Yes, yes. So anyway, so you that You want to pluck them so that you look surprised? <laughs> like death surprised you? <laughs> like, how did that happen? But when we got the prognosis, it allowed us to prepare. Now, the awesome part about it was, although we had um, our family, our matriarchs were miles away, uh, they were right there on the phone and they would pray. They would, you know, my grandmother, I stood on the phone with her for hours and I would always keep her up to date. And then when I told her what the prognosis was, she said, don't worry about anything. We'll take care of it from here in Chicago. So when I, when my grandmother got that call, that that, you know, that call that Brittany had made her her journey to paradise, my grandmother had taken care of everything on that end. Yeah. So. I have a, a, something dog-eared. Mm-hmm. You're a dog-earing something, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Are you okay over there? You need a hug? I'm okay. You sure? Yeah. Okay. When I read your book, I was sharing with them be before we started recording. My my girlfriend had to console me about halfway through the yeah. the book. Uh, I and I can't. It's rough for men. It's it's a rough one for men. I just it's, I can't imagine what it would be like. I never even met her. And yeah, that's right. Because by the time, that's right. Because after we got out of our zombie years, that's when we started to kind of socialize a little. Yeah, because we kept it. We kept her situation and our situation a little private. Yeah. Very private. Yeah, yeah I know. Very I know. <laughs> if you would, there's a couple of things that I've dog-eared that I, that I would like you guys to read. Regatta, would you start with right? Uh, where right, the right. Uh, where my name is? Yeah. Okay. And then, and then just read uh, until uh, okay. I, I wave. Okay. So um, uh, we were like walking zombies. I was just going through the motions. I, I was in a fetal position emotionally for at least nine years. And then as far as Anthony was concerned, ten years you do things by by rote. You're depressed. You don't hear the birds chirping. You don't smell the roses, but you go about life. Uh, for those 10 years, we didn't really celebrate holidays. We were just going through the motions. You know, you do this, you do that, but there was really no joy. We were both like, like really rail thin also. And there's a picture of me uh, at a friend's house, uh, which was taken right after Brittany passed away. And I was skeletal. Yeah, I remember this picture. I was just sitting there in the chair. Years later, I would reflect back and think, wow, I can't remember even having fun going out on a date, having an awesome time as an adult or anything, because I was I was just in a holding pattern. When people said, smile. I smiled, but they didn't know. 
They really, really didn't know. What I couldn't tolerate was complaining. After Brittany passed away, I would see parents being so impatient with their children, moms with their toddlers or their babies. You have a child who can crawl or walk, right? You have a toddler who can toddle. And you're seeing it as a problem that you can't always keep up with your baby? Your child is learning to explore his or her world, and you're seeing that as a negative. I, I didn't see any of those things as negatives with Brittany. I knew we had a limited time together. I'd hear parents complain, oh, I have to childproof everything. I didn't have the opportunity to childproof everything. The prism through which I viewed the world was a little distorted. I, I, I realize that now, but I couldn't help applying my perception to what I saw. And I was constantly having conversations in my head with, with, with these parents. They might have their experiences with their children cut short as well as I. So they should appreciate every moment. And being in Hollywood, I heard a lot of whining in general, and I had such a low tolerance for it. I, I just wanted to scream, are you kidding? Seriously? But I didn't, you know. If we were at a party, I'd say, listen, Anthony, I'll meet you in the car. Hurry up and say goodbye. Then I sit in the car by myself while it took him an hour or an hour and a half to get out of there because he had to say goodbye to everyone for fear <laughs> that he might hurt somebody's feelings. Well, I didn't care. Anthony, shoot me a look. It's in the book, man. <laughs> I'm reading the words. But she's reading her words, too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. Oh, sure. to talk about how... It affected you, and maybe from a from a psychologist's point of view, also mm -hmm. what is common for a parent's experience after they lose a child, especially at a, at a young age. Oh my goodness, yeah. It, um, you know, this is what research says. This is not just my anecdotal view of it, but research um, bears out that preparation for for any type of loss, uh, loss of life is really, really important. Sudden loss of life, um, it, it, it places a person at a, a, a different kind of peril emotionally. And um, it makes them predisposed to be an emotion, more emotionally fragile than they would mm -hmm. be if they had opportunities to get the situation together, say goodbyes, give extra hugs and so forth. Mm -hmm. And as Anthony would always say, you know, you never promise tomorrow. Um, but yeah, research bears that sudden loss is just more significantly more devastating than that loss, which has been um, anticipated. Mm -hmm. So um, in my experience and, and in my practice, whether the loss has been through a miscarriage or a spontaneous birth what the child um, didn't survive, um, there's still a grieving process. It's still a grieving process. And some might say you grieve in a certain order. You don't grieve in a certain order. Some days you acknowledge. Some days you're pissed off. And other days you you are angry so much so that you don't want to talk about it. You isolate. And then you have good days. So it's fluid. You know, it's fluid. It's it's almost like the um, the actualization triangle where we think, well, once you've actualized and you get to that 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 
pinnacle, then you have arrived. That's not how that works either. Because depending on your station in life and your journey of life, we all actualize in different chapters of our lives, you know, um, in a diverse way. So when when a mother loses a child, well, not lose it because we know where they are, right? But uh, when there's loss of life, um, and if um, a mother has uh, also been predisposed to postpartum issues, that just compounds it. Which so, you were or no? I, I was not. I don't think I was. Hmm. I don't think I was. Um, uh, as far as the postpartum part, because right. I had months, you know, I had a couple of right. years. So I, you know, I, I relished in it. But I still had th- those two bags and that luggage that I was dealing with yeah. from uh, my childhood experiences. So that um, complicated how I grieved and the intensity in which I grieved. And that because my go to place was to internalize and stay in my head and not have a conversation with someone like I should, then guess what? You know, your thoughts get distorted. You know, you start talking to yourself in conversations. Now, I didn't have the good heckler when I was going through this. If I had, if I had had the good heckler, me and the heckler would have double teamed the, the, you know, the critical tape in the head. But I just had the heckler, the heckler. Why don't you just, Go ahead, get everything together, get real, real pretty. Then when Tony turns the key in the door, he'll he'll turn it just in time so rigor mortis won't set in. Because, you know, mm-hmm. if you decide that you're going to do this as a woman, you know, we want to look pretty. Guys, you do stuff real quick. You do the gun thing, jump the hell off the bridge, you know, crash. And fr- you know, it's final for you guys. Ours is a cry for help. Well, we're active. Yes. You know, Very we're active. outdoors. <laughs> we're <Yes>. outdoorsy. <laughs> <laughs> but ours um, is a cry for help. We really don't want to, but we just want a solution. Yeah. And, and we can't think of a solution because we miss our, 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 you know, our babies. Was there ever any dynamic between you mourning the childhood that you didn't have mm-hmm. and mourning Brittany's? Good question. Good Childhood question. being cut short. Yeah, good question. I had to compartmentalize that, Paul. Both of them? Oh, I had to. I had to. Um, because it would have been just too much for my psyche to deal with the what ifs. Because that would have been a lot of what ifs. Remember, because you know I got the tape running in my head. What if? You didn't have the opportunity to, to correct this. You didn't have the opportunity to, to mother in the way that you would have wanted to be mothered. So the remorse associated with that was just I had to push that push that back. So I would get angry, um, um, not at Brittany for leaving, but getting angry at how I was raised and how I didn't have the opportunity to kind of do it right, quote unquote, right. Um, and then after a while, I, c- I couldn't even think of the two because I think if I had thought of the two, you know, just conjoined like that. I think I would have went on ahead and, and instead of having suicidal ideations, in addition to plan, I would have went through with it because I had suicidal ideations and a plan. That's lethal. Yeah, that's lethal. The ideations, you know, all of us sometimes think of that. We can have ideations. There's no law against that. Right. And that's not something that that a good therapist would commit somebody no. for. No, nor should should one that just got their license. But yeah, so it was it, it could have been a perfect storm if I didn't compartmentalize it in my head. And like I said, I I didn't have the, the good heckler. You know, grief, bereavement and a loss of 
of any any kind of loss is significant. Um, Anthony, well, you may know him. He, he's a dear, dear person. He he experienced a loss, but it was a canine loss, and he felt so guilty with sharing that with Anthony. And what did you what did you uh, Nick? Yeah, Nick Gazer. What did I say? Did Me. I miss? misspeak oh i meant not you had a loss but you had a friend who experienced a loss i apologize who has anomia me or you okay yeah and he and he felt guilty for for he grieving he didn't want to bring it up right because he knew of the loss we had for Brittany. right this was recent about the past year yeah and because he never had children Mm -hmm. um and his dog was him was with him for years yeah and, that and he felt guilty. Yeah, so that when he died, he shared with me that he cried like a baby. Because yeah. in essence, that was his baby. The dog would knew when he would come home from a set, would be waiting, would be in the uh, window. And I, t- had, I told Nick that, hey, grief is grief. Loss yeah. is loss. Yeah. I, I cried a thousand times harder for my dog, dying than yeah. I did for my dad dying. And yeah. it's not that I didn't love my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad was just very withdrawn mm-hmm. and yes. distant mm-hmm. and we didn't make a lot of memories together. Mm-hmm. Yes. Whereas my dog yes. it was there was consistent love consistent. through my life. Yes. And you also feel like it you mm-hmm. know, like you're responsible for them, yeah. which I think is a different kind of love. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. maybe that's what they what so they you, share. You, you but you I would have been I would have never brought it up with Yeah. Either of you, because mm-hmm. I would have felt, but I'm glad you you mentioned it because yeah. I think people do um, wonder what is appropriate, what is inappropriate. Share right. some of the things that are inappropriate that people have said to you in the wake of losing um, her. Um, people have said, "Well, well, you have another kid," as if she was replaceable. Yes, and yes, interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or they um, like they, a Brita filter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, right. Write yes. that date on there, and then you know, go purchase another one. I think for me, the question that I get a lot is, and I think it's more conversational than anything else. I, I don't think anyone means malice. Do you have children? Now, if I say no, don't push it. Right. If I say no, don't push it. But I've learned to kind of get around that. We kind of have this script and this dance that we do. But if I say no, just leave me the hell alone. Just yeah. move on to something else. Let's talk about my shoes or my blouse or what store I've I've shopped at. But don't don't push it. Don't, yeah. I have a, a very low tolerance for that because there are some people who were not necessarily in Anthony and I's situation, but maybe they've been trying to have children, <coughs> and, or maybe uh, they can't have children for what ever reason you just don't push that thing so that's a that's the thing you don't do if i were to ever write an article on the quickest way to disenfranchise yourself from someone is to ask these five stupid ass questions yeah that would be one and the other thing i would apply to that though it's not as heavy but Mm -hmm. um if somebody if you ask them if they would like you know a beer or a drink mm-hmm. oh and my that person goodness says yeah. no yes do right. not pour you have no idea that person right. might be that's trying right. to yeah. stay sober to, to save their yes. life and yes. hanging that's on right. by a thread by a thread yeah and also um at church on mother's day yeah that's a they, rough one they, yeah uh for people like you said are trying to have kids yeah have not have, have, have they lost. don't have lost mm-hmm. the kid uh, the fact that uh 
you do not know the history That's of right. this person. Yeah. And the fact that, well, you know, we're not going to celebrate you mm. because you're, you don't have a child. Right. That in church. So, so a, a lot of times, or a few years, uh, Brigetta didn't come go mm. to church during Mother's Day because mm-hmm. it would always be, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just a lack they would of always acknowledgement. Say, Mother, stand up. Yeah, yeah. You know the other thing that would be nice too, and I don't know if church is the appropriate place for it, mm-hmm. but I actually think it would be, would be to acknowledge people that had complicated relationships mm-hmm. with their mothers yes. mm-hmm. or negative experiences yes. Yes. with their mothers because mm-hmm. that's a big thing to miss out on. Mm-hmm. That's a really big thing to miss it's out on. It's significant, talk, yeah. Talk about attachment mm-hmm. and the effects that... Uh, atta- I know we could probably do a four-hour uh, podcast just bu- on, on that, but yes. if you could in you know kind okay. of general terms mm-hmm. sure. talk about attachment theory. Um, I... You know, let me just share the genesis of how I became a fan of attachment theory. I, um, and some people may not know this, but part of my training is, is forensics, right? And I worked with, um, high profile, uh, convicted people. Let's Tehachi, just put it to Tehachapi prison. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, a maximum security yes. prison. Which yard were you on? Because I've, I've been there. Okay, I was not on, as a as yeah. an inmate. But, <laughs> I was on the special needs yard where the high profilers were, and uh, in the max. And special needs will also special include needs, that includes uh, those who may be going through a uh, transition sexually or uh, their gender identity issues. Those who have been um, on the news, cops. Mm-hmm. Uh, gang members leaving a gang? Uh, yes, yes. People considered to be snitches? Uh, yes, L- absolutely. Some LGBTQ? A lot of LGBTQ. A lot of. Uh, even more so now. So th- 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 and then there were some who said, honey, don't put me in special needs. I'm fine. I know how to cut a bitch. That's yeah. what they would tell me. And I'd be like, okay, but let me just, you know, mm-hmm. let me just go through the screening for you. But anyway, um, we started to get a lot of ministers who were coming in uh, because they had um, molested their children and, and, and their, their daughters bore their children. And that was difficult for me to deal with. Right. And I had been used to dealing with uh, treating trauma for a, a long, long time and children of the night. I think I cut my teeth on them. Those girls were just awesome, resilient angels. But when I got to the prison, I told uh, the director, I said, I don't like these guys. I just, I just, I don't think I can, I don't, I don't know what technique you want me to use, but you know, I can't see the light at the end of this therapeutic tunnel. And um, the, the director, he said, well, what's your orientation? I said, well, I don't have a, a necessary uh, an, uh, an orientation per se, but I try to uh, conceptualize each of my patients from an attachment perspective. And he says, that's how you have to start with these guys. He said they were, they were once children as well. Well, I'm like, well, how, why in the hell did you tell me that in the first place? Mm-hmm. The light just clicked off for me. So when I'm in front of someone who was maybe a serial rapist or someone who did just horrific things, uh, to, children, animals, and, and the like, whether they be dead or alive. I've, I've seen it all. Um, once I went to that uh, place, which was, tell me about your childhood. 
because they were wounded spirits. Every last one of them were wounded spirits. And if I, if I conceptualize them as uh, me treating uh, an adult, I wouldn't like them. And my director said, well, no, I, we wouldn't expect you to like them, right. uh, but how are you going to assist them through this journey? And that was the way I did it, uh, was from the attachment theory. Now, the other attachment piece is... Um, um, what we call inhibited attachment and disinhibited attachment. Those children who just sit on anybody's lap mm-hmm. or those children who are really socially cautious, socially reserved, or those children who um, you they would kill a cat and then blame it on the next child and then smother the child and then pee the bed and then go try to strangle the, the, the parakeet. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a an attachment issue. And it's a dissociative issue, too, because this is how the children have learned to cope because they they mimic, they model, uh, they solve their problems in this way. So attachment is really, really important. Children who have been taken out of the homes of, of parents at an early age is just it used to be that, oh, yeah, adopt a child before the age of three. And then, you know, mm-hmm. you can raise a child in the way he or she should um, be. But that's not the case anymore. You really have to. And social services really don't they don't disclose this about mm-hmm. how the child was removed from the home. Mm. Talk about healthy attachment. Healthy attachment is an attachment that allows a child to uh, not to avoid conflict because you don't want to avoid conflict in the home. I think that's a misnomer. Parents and caregivers believe that we don't want to argue. We don't want to cause conflict. No, no, no. It's okay to argue. It's okay to debate. But how you resolve the issue it it's 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 rich it's hardy it's fertile ground for a child to learn and model oh this is how you do it you don't get up and walk away and slam the door you actively listen and you you acknowledge and you validate it's it sounds simple but it's it's not easily done because this man to my right he's still learning how to actively listen right um, and I see you have it I down to a look. science, Paul. <laughs> I, I love that look, Anthony. See, That's, Paul is I wish head I shaking. He's given <laughs> eye contact. He has vocal intonation to let me know that he's listening. No, so, <laughs> no. Uh, what's, what's, what's cool was the early in our uh, marriage, she would uh, leave, leave me notes, notes on yes. the bed. <laughs> and I, w- I would go... What, how come? How come she can't just tell me? Right. Turn over and say, "Hey, you're a dick." Yeah. And yeah. these are the reasons why. No. Because L- a, a note can't stab you. That's yes, right. yes. That's right. And, <laughs> and now, by reading the book, I, I, and because of what she told me of her upbringing, yeah. I now understand that she couldn't do that. Where in my house you could in your house you could now i've swung the other way now you know how the pendulum goes you've taken physics i hope at least in high school (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, that's okay well the 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 pendulum had swung to the other extreme and i wouldn't let him get away with breathing the wrong way because i wanted to confront it head on because he wasn't going to bed without talking about it and um (laughs) he's we still have challenges with being able to 
fight fairly, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Yeah. Um, not shutting down and, and when I confront him, and maybe it's because I confront him in it. I go, yeah. what, what's, what's the issue? What are you thinking? What's going on? Give me some words. Oh, nothing. Now, body language is a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. So that means you're an emotional liar. And I don't like it when people are emotional liars. Right. I just don't. And I, and I already know to say, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah. You just shut up? yeah, that means give you space. <laughs> so that attachment thing, you know, there's that juxtaposition between how he um, dealt with his caregiver and how she just validated the heck out of him. Yeah. And he had the confidence of a giant. Right. And he externalized that in ways that we benefited from it, uh, you know, on television and with friendships. Mine was a to- totally yeah. different. And what's yeah. diff- what's different is that. Um, when my stepfather passed, mm-hmm. that was the first time of me really getting to know him because oh. I had to pick out the clothes he would wear for his funeral. Mm. And that was the first time because uh, we didn't shoot the breeze. We didn't hang out. He yeah. didn't teach me how to uh, play sports or tie my tie or shave. None of that. Mm-hmm. So, so when I went to the closet and went, wow, he dressed the part. He dressed well. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing. You know, when I got to his car and saw he had a, a golf clubs, I had I knew nothing on that because he was so secretive when it came to, uh, yeah, his life. Mm-hmm. And in some ways. You also have that trait, not in terms of with Brigetta, yeah. but in terms of the population. You were diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis, yes. what, 25 years ago? About 24, mm-hmm. 25 years. Yeah. And I didn't know until I saw you maybe five years ago. And it was just from observing you yes. that I knew something was was happening. Um Talk about navigating that. I mean, I know we could do five shows just yes. alone on that, <laughs> but maybe we could um, talk about how you guys handle that together. Mm. Not only what it's like for you, Anthony, and the fears that must come up yes. around it, but Brigetta, how you handle that as sometimes his caregiver mm. and also sometimes the spouse mm-hmm. that is also afraid. Yeah. I know the big thing. Uh, in Hollywood was that if you seem if you're shown broken, then people will step o- step away from you. Right. I don't want to catch that. They are thinking, right. uh, okay, he's through because of of things he's going through. So so I hid a long time uh, the MS because um, you you're trying to get to a level in Hollywood that. You're just as good as the next person, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I know with uh, with you know when I first uh, was diagnosed. Well, before that, I would go to a neurologist, and um, and he and he would say, "Well, you just you just have a little MS, which is <laughs> like mm-hmm. you're a little pregnant, right? Right, right. <laughs> so no big thing. You have a dollop <laughs> of MS. <laughs> yes, <A> dollops." <laughs> And so, um, so, uh, yeah, so I had the, I 
had diagnosed officially with MS. I have a neurologist. I'm on the freeway and my eyes, I'm going, man, it, it looks like I'm losing my sight mm-hmm. on the 405 in the middle of traffic. That could be a problem. <laughs> right, right. Yes. And I'm going, and I do the stupid things. I, I turn down the radio thinking that's going to help yeah. me see better. You turn the wipers yes, on. Yes, yes, yes. All that stupid stuff. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, and I try, and I, I get to the, um, off the freeway. I try to park the cars as best I can. And I look back and my car's totally so far away from, <laughs> from parking. Um, but, uh, my sight was about 40%. And I text my wife to tell her I have a problem. I'm going to meet here. And your other senses kicked in because when I lost my sight, my my hearing was heightened. Mm-hmm. I can hear if there was a w- woman walking by or a man walking by. And the cool thing, being a six four black guy, I knew a lot of people were not going to bother you. Fr- right, 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 right. I was I was still a, a, a tall black guy, <laughs> so I was cool in that sense and. And my smelling, my smell was heightened. Um, I could smell if I was by a pizza place, or so it was real interesting. But I did all that. I see my um, my neurologist, and I said, "Is this due to MS?" No, of course not. No, Are you sure? Because I've never <laughs> went blind before. Right. I've never been blind before. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm positive. Yeah, no, this is from driving on the 405. <laughs> right, right. It's a small. Yeah. And so then I was part of a MS group, and I asked them. In Tehachapi, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, I asked them, hey, I went blind for a while. Does, uh, has anyone had that experience? Everybody hand <laughs> went up. Spot. Sure. Oh, yeah, which one? <laughs> right eye, left eye. Both eyes. Yeah, where'd you pull over? Oh, yeah, I pulled right. over there before. Yeah. That's a great parking lot. You can smell the pizza from there. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I knew that uh, the experts are. fire that neurologist, right. yeah. And yeah. and they're searching. You know, it's MS is still so new. Um, they first told me it's a white woman's disease. And they're telling me a black guy. Yeah. Right, right. I'm going, okay. Wow, and so so that has passed. They they've said now, um, it's you you get the MS at a certain age. Uh, it's not a, a teenagers won't get that. So the, everyone they're still searching. It's still mm-hmm. relatively new. So the cool thing with Brigetta, she reads constantly. Um, she was ready to pull the trigger, and 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 I was still hesitant. For years, but, yeah, and I, but I had friends who it was. They always thought, "Oh, we just thought you were getting old," <laughs> and and uh, as as only comics could go over, right? We, yes. we just thought that you yeah. know, right? And when you say Brigetta was getting ready to pull the trigger, meaning uh, sharing with people I that you had to it so badly, but you respected him and you mm-hmm. did it on his timetable as much as that drove yeah. you crazy. I think I um, disclosed to one person because they brought it to our attention that a director had thought Anthony had a drinking issue. Yeah. 
And that person. I did, but (laughs) that was just an addition. Yeah, I thought that made you walk straight (laughs) myself. Uh, But uh, that person had been uh, foretold about that prior, Mm -hmm. so they were very respectful, and they said, "No, he's he's fine." And and this person said um, to you know. this other person, this director said, are you sure? Because he's, you know, he looks, he's stumbling around and looks like he doesn't have his correct footing. And the person said, no, he's, he's fine. Yes. He's doing fine because he didn't have permission to disclose. Right. right? That must be really hard. Oh, I was so angry. Can I just say angry? Yes. I know it's such a primitive word. You know, so much in between anger and not angry. Right. Yes. But I choose to generalize it. I was pissed off because I'm like, Anthony, they need to know they're assuming they're projecting what they think might be going on and then while you're trying to protect your career you may be losing your career because they don't know and that's one of the things uh, i like that you touch on throughout this book is the difference of how you two will deal with problems especially when they're interpersonal problems Mm. with how people treat you and Anthony, in particular, when he would be working for a club. Oh, Lord. Now, why do you bring <laughs> that up? See, oh, see, those are fighting. Now you're talking to a shy sister now. Yes. Oh, my lanterns. I yeah. think that's one of the things that is beautiful about this is you're so honest about your desire to kind of step in and take the reins. Mm-hmm. When you feel like he should be more aggressive mm-hmm. or outspoken or self-advocating, mm-hmm. and yet as you began to get your degree, mm-hmm. you recognized this within yourself, and you began to allow him the dignity mm-hmm. of setting his own boundaries yeah, and finding his own voice. That must have been really Certainly. fucking hard. It was. It was. It was real. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was really fucking hard. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I had to give him the... Uh, the latitude and you know because I didn't want to emasculate him and I didn't want to be the stereotypical black woman that just takes charge I mean that was the urge and I saw some shit going down with him that I'm like oh hell no I will burn that place down no don't do that (laughs) don't do that honey so I didn't do it because I know that this is a small community it's Mm -hmm. a very small community and I didn't want to be that wife that's known as the crazy ass woman because I can go there. I can go there. Um, but, um, yeah, he, he, he's, he's got that spirit. He's just a giving benevolent person and I'm the opposite in the way I think he, he, people, everybody starts off with 10 points with him, right? Mm -hmm. He get, he get, you get a free 10 points with me. You start with zero and then you work your way up. You earn them MFs. That is such a great way of describing it. Yeah. That is such a great way of describing it. So, the two last things that I'd like to to talk about what it's like as the spouse of someone with mm-hmm. MS mm-hmm. and then if you could talk about faith because mm-hmm. a lot of people listening to this would be like they lose a daughter at 3 mm-hmm. to a brutal disease mm-hmm. and the way that she passed mm-hmm. and then he gets MS mm-hmm. where is God mm-hmm. where is God yeah, where do how go? do you still believe in God mm-hmm. after yes. Mm-hmm. After that, yeah, so where if you did would he go? Touch on those two things. Well, as a wife, um, um, yeah, um, 
I compartmentalize, as I, I mentioned to you. I think that that really kind of helped my sanity as a child to compartmentalize. Some people call it dissociation. I choose not to, but mm-hmm. it's a compartmentalization of how I'm going to deal with an issue. And um, Anthony has, you know, the you know, he has a, a neurological issue that is the, uh, you know, the fraternal twin of Alzheimer's and the cousin of Parkinson's. I didn't know that. Well, listen, they I share the either. same. They share the same street. <laughs> what did he say? I didn't, you didn't know that either. No, they they live on the same block. Yeah, mm-hmm, as yeah. far as the brain yeah, is concerned, it's got to be awkward barbecues. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Do I bring something to drink? Chips? <laughs> How you feeling? Not so good. Right. How about you? Right. I'm not so good either. <laughs> and we we have None dark sense all, of humor about uh, it, but uh, right. None of you all can cook. Cook. Let let me handle the food. You all just have a seat. Yeah, you all just have a seat. So we've learned to adapt. I've learned to adapt. Um, I'm still working on not completing his sentences for him uh, because with his neurological disorder, it just takes him a little time for the, you know, the tape to kind of. Uh, reboot. Uh, he has the words, and sometimes he 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 knows the word, but it's it's and everyone has it, Paul. Yes. It's like, what's that word? What's that word? Well, he has a lot of that lately, and uh, I know it's frustrating for him. And as his wife, you know, I try to complete you, as the, as the movie says, you complete me. But he doesn't like that all the time. He's like, no, let me think about it. Let me think about it. And then now he's better, but as, as well as I. But at 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 one point, I would allow him to languish <laughs> trying to find the word. And he would say, give me the word. And I go, no, hell no. You're going to work for this one. <laughs> so we, we have a dark sense of humor. And, um, yeah, we have a really dark sense of humor. It's, it's, it's like it's, I, I, it, that helps. I tell her um, it's like uh, I have a computer. I'm, I'm a computer. Yeah. And I have my software system, mm. operating system is uh 09 <laughs> and so it's like i can i'll still do do it but right. it just takes me it takes time you it got that co- you got that uh, colorful wheel spinning yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. he's a buffering kind yes. of guy yes. <laughs> my dad used to say when my dad would just kind of go blank he would say mm. uh, my brain just went to screensaver right, <laughs> I right. Love that. yes, yes. yes. That's yeah. beautiful. his brain goes to screen screensaver a lot so i have i've i've learned and i'm still learning to kind of back off give him that cognitive space uh but sometimes depending on what he consumes which I'm very protective of, will um, that'll determine the quality of his responses. If he consumes a lot of processed foods, mm-hmm. and and don't finish it, but I know you're going to go there. White flour, white sugar, white potatoes, white rice. <laughs> He's not going to say it. What do you normally say when I say that? White women. White women. So. Consumption of those things are not good for him, but uh, I can see the lethargy uh, associated with him consuming those things. <laughs> yeah, he says white women, but yeah, but but those are not good for anyone. Yeah. And so, as you probably know, the gut and the other the gut is the other brain, right? It, it's mood is so related Ooh, to the healthiness yes. of the gut. Oh yes. my lanterns! Yes, flora, no flora, good flora. Uh, you know, your, the quality of your life is is determined about how you think, how you respond to stress, what you eat, and the people that you choose to have around you. Well, what a good segue into faith, mm. which uh, I would imagine 
for you, greatly affects the prism that you view reality through. Um, talk, uh, talk about, you know, if, if somebody was, and I'm somebody who does believe in a, in a higher power mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. absolutely uh, changed my life, this podcast would not be possible without Thanks. it. If somebody was here that didn't believe there was something in the universe that could have a complex way of loving us or bringing us comfort mm-hmm. in yeah. difficult times, and they were to say to you, if God is loving, why would you have MS when you've been this upstanding guy your whole life, and why would he have taken your daughter at three years old? You know, the the, the cool thing is that um, with those questions, there are an- answers. Um, when Brittany passed and the Bible, uh, and there are many g- examples of people that have lost loved ones um, in the Bible. And they all say, um, the joy is that I will see them again. Uh, the fact that uh, God, there's no, for, for Brittany, there was no more pain. There was no more suffering. And, um, and she was with the creator. So the fact that I will see her again, and the fact that... Um, and the Bible was constantly repeated. God said, I'm with you. I got this. Trust me. So the 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 enemy will say, you're by yourself. I was just talking to my wife today. Um, community uh, is so important. So important. It's so important. Because cause, uh, in, in, even in the Bible, they say, hey, fellowship is so important because the the enemy if you if you're not if you're by yourself there's so many things that are going through your head mm-hmm. no one loves me no one cares about me i've blown it i've blown it yeah i'm yeah. De- um i'm not going i'm not going i'm not good enough all in your head all in your head so you're thinking uh, yeah why why don't i just end it um the community will say no no there are people who are in your life um, that will that you can rely on, that you can trust. As Brigetta said earlier in this podcast, if she had a, uh, a older her to say, "Hey, you know what you say is right. That that did suck, um, but it's okay. You could get better." So I think the cool thing with the MS, the death. Um, That's not a sentence you hear very often. The, the no. cool thing with the MS, because right. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm. Um, if anything, it's made me stronger. I talk uh, in church. They talk about you're always in your life. You're going through sto- storms. Either storms you're about to go into, you've come out of, uh, you're in, and the storm in your li- in life will make you. It's going to make you better. You're going to be different than what you were before you went into the storm. You will be uh, stronger. You will be calmer. You will have more patience, or you will be bolder. And and, um, and yeah. possibly have more meaning and purpose yes. in your life, yes. which allows us to more deeply connect with our fellow man. Yes. And that's where, for me, 
I feel God. I can't intellectualize God, yes. but I know that when I am in a place where I feel one of many mm-hmm. and I feel trust and I feel love, mm-hmm. there's a feeling that takes over me, a peace mm-hmm. yes. that is inaccessible mm. when I am just thinking about myself. Yes. yes. Future yes. tripping. Yes. yes. Future, oh, future <laughs> tripping. I like that word. Or just re- regretting yeah. the past. Yeah. Yes. For me, I can only access God in the present moment. Mm. I yes. can't. You. And I don't know if it's a conscious entity up there. I, but it works for I, you, I know it? at the very least, yeah. it gives me strength and comfort. Mm. Good. Yes. And it gives a structure to my life. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, I would just go the fuck everybody else. Yes. I'm getting mine route. And I yes. did that for 40 years. How did that yeah. work? I wanted to kill myself. Yes. yes. Yep. And since trying this other way, which yep. I'm certainly far from perfect at, yeah. I want to live. Mm-hmm. I enjoy my life. Yes. And mm-hmm. I feel like I I have a purpose. Oh, yeah. purpose. Living on purpose yeah. is, is really, I think it's it's more needed than trying to live for happiness. If you live on purpose, then the happiness will come in different phases. But live on purpose, that's that takes some that takes some yeah. energy, doesn't and, it? And, and, and yeah. you've learned all that in Hollywood, mm. which is the uh, one place where it's all about, hey, I'm telling you, get what you can mm. while by by yourself. Mm-hmm. No one is yeah. Yeah. It's it is a spiritually sick Town. Yes. yes. A very spiritually sick town. Yeah. I heard uh, a woman tell a story one time. She wanted to work with Mother Teresa. Yes. And she camped outside her hotel room when Mother Teresa was visiting the United States. And she finally saw her one day after being camped out there for a couple of days. And she introduced herself and she said, I want to come to Calcutta and work with you. And Mother Teresa said, what do you do here? She said, I work for a theater company. It's a stupid job. And Mother Teresa said, no, stay here and keep that job. In India, we have a famine of food. But in America, Mm. it's a, a famine of spirit. Yep. Yes. Yep. That's right. It definitely is. Yeah. And uh, speaking of community, I think it's really important to have your village or tribe in all aspects of your life, whether you're going through a healing process emotionally, uh, just eating what you got to have. You have to have your tribe members if you don't or the accountability partners, at least one or two. Someone who will call you on your stuff Mm -hmm. in a safe environment. I think being in a safe environment, that's really important. And and church uh, for many is a safe environment. A relationship has to feel safe. Uh, Support groups, which, you know, I'm a proponent of that, you know. um, But, um, you know, I, I think one has to feel heard. Yes. Yeah, but also uh, made accountable for their choices. Right. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming and well, sharing your you. story. It's really great to, yeah. to see you again. And the book Ditto. is called Behind the Laughter. I, yeah. I can't recommend it enough. Um, it's so moving and um, there's just so much, so much in there. Well, thank you for yeah. listening and thank you for uh, kind of reframing some stuff, rephrasing some stuff for me when my, my inner voice wouldn't allow me to say those words that you say. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So nice to reconnect with with both of them. Uh, and be sure to to check out their uh, their book. It's it's amazing.
It really is amazing. It's so moving. Uh, let's give some shout-outs to our sponsors, Calm. If you guys uh, have never checked out the Calm app, it's the number one app for sleep. And I'm sure it's not news to you guys that if you don't get enough sleep, it affects you negatively in all kinds of ways. Uh, with Calm, you can discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and your body need. They have soundscapes with over a hundred sleep stories narrated by amazing, soothing voices like uh, the guy from Game of Thrones, uh, Jerome Flynn, and uh, comedian Stephen Fry, who has an amazing voice. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. And right now, you guys, the Mental Illness Happy Hour listeners, get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's calm.com slash mental. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash mental. Today's episode is also sponsored by Bayes. Bayes is pioneering personalized vitamins with evidence-based supplementation based on your blood sample. It's super simple to take. They ship you a box that has everything you need. You open it up. The instructions uh, are clearly printed on it. Um, You take this little blood sample. you don't even have to do anything except just push down on this thing on your arm and it takes it for you. You put it back in the box, you drop it off, and it gets shipped back to them. And then they will tell you what vitamins and supplements you could benefit from. And you can do it as a subscription if you'd like. And then you can find as you, maybe your body changes. You'll find out, oh, I don't need enough of this vitamin anymore. Uh, you know, I could start easing off on on that one. So... You can control your progress uh, by retesting every three months, and Bayes allows you to dynamically adjust it to your needs. So right now, Bayes is offering 20% off your first purchase of one of their products. This includes the Impact Package, giving you the full experience in three months of vitamins, the personalized vitamin subscription, or a nutrient test kit. So go to Bayes.com. Use promo code MENTAL for 20% off. Invest in your personal health today and feel the benefits at bays.com. promo code MENTAL. Let's get to some surveys. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Curly BB. And she writes, my mother-in-law had a heart attack on Sunday. That's it. That's her happy moment. <laughs> uh, my mother-in-law had a heart attack on Sunday. In the prior week, I was told that I would have to work more hours with no extra benefits. It sounds to me like she works at every corporation in America. I was overwhelmed and sad. I picked my five-year-old up from day camp, and I just wanted to cry from everything happening. I bought her an Icy because it was so hot. She mixed two flavors together and was wide-eyed as she took her first sip, clearly unsure of how it would taste. She gave me a thumbs up, and I could see the joy in her face as she tasted it. She ate the rest of her lemonade-slash-cherry-icy, occasionally asking to see how red her tongue was in my phone, excitedly squealing as it got redder and redder. That small experience brought me so much joy. What a beautiful moment. What a beautiful moment. It's like, isn't that the challenge of life, is how how do we retain that excitement that comes so naturally to kids? as we just take on more and more responsibilities and the 
path of least resistance to just become more and more cynical and shut down and disconnect from everything around us. It's hard. It's hard. Oh, to be five and eating an icy. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, what's the MILF version of a fuckboy? She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a stable and safe environment. I got to question that. But then again, that's just me. She was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, My entire sexual life has been consequences of having no boundaries. Most of them have been, and that's the reason I I question the stable and safe environment because people that have no sense of boundaries usually don't come from stable and safe environments. Anyways, uh, continuing. Most of them have been related to being pressured into sex acts that I didn't want to do because I felt like I owed someone or that I was a bad person or girlfriend if I didn't try. After I gave birth, my husband entered into a deep depression and was inconsolable. He was upset that our sex life wasn't, quote, like everyone else's. And he talked to all his friends about how much sex they had or were having and how we weren't normal and that even the doctor said it was okay. He, quote, only wanted vaginal sex, not hand jobs, not blow jobs, not massage, because otherwise he didn't, quote, feel loved. Sex was painful. My vagina felt like two pieces of duct tape stuck sticky side together, and it made me cry. But I tried over and over again to do it because it was the only thing that he wanted. He finally told me to stop trying because, quote, it hurt him too much to see me in that kind of pain. He was... So much to unpack here. Uh, how about the fuck what he feels? Fuck, it was painful to you. Uh, he was angry that he had to quote do all this work, like light a candle and set the mood. At night in bed, he would ask me how my day was and make a phone call before I had even answered and then get upset that I was too tired half an hour later after taking care of our child all day. He didn't work for the first year of our daughter's life. What was wrong with me that I didn't, but what was wrong with me that I didn't want sex late at night? See, to me, if somebody had come from an emotionally validating home, with boundaries, they would have recognized this guy as really, really unhealthy. They wouldn't have been attracted to somebody like that. That's that's my my hunch. Ever been uh, emotionally or physically abused? Uh, I dated a narcissist remotely. It was such a classic narcissist move. He groomed me and made me feel amazing, isolated me. I quit my job to work on his company together. After I had left my job and was working for almost no money, he started to verbally abuse me. He would tell me that I was a money-hungry whore. He threatened, I think you're taking that the wrong way. I think he meant a money-hungry whore, like in a complimentary way. Uh, He threatened my family physically. I was so deeply embarrassed that I didn't tell anyone. I finally got up the courage to tell him that I didn't want to date him after a huge outburst, but at the time, my entire income was dependent on him. I moved in with my parents to go to grad school. I still don't think they know how horrible he was, just that he wasn't a great fit. I still feel so ashamed. 
to me, a healthy family, you would have felt safe to go to your parents with this. Um, any positive experiences with the abuser? No, I know that the narcissist was an asshole. Every positive experience is so tainted by his disorder. I don't have complicated feelings because I'm comfortable with simply knowing he is a broken kind of person that is too damaged for me. I feel grateful that I'm not dating him anymore and that I got out unscathed, and I just try to not think about him out in the world. I imagine that he will eventually get his karmic due. You can't be that way he was forever. One second. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about leaving my child and starting my life over again in L.A. I'm trapped in Arizona with shared custody with my ex-husband, and I fucking hate this bullshit desert state. I love and miss California, and I've never felt so at home or alive in a place that I live. I often fantasize that he dies in a car accident or that my daughter hates me so, hates me so that I can leave. She's three. Darkest secrets. Sex parties and infidelity. I've been the other woman more than five or six times. I've had sex with over a hundred people, not including sex clubs. I want two husbands who are devoted to me and my happiness, not one. I want two lovers at the same time. I am part of a swinger community, and I fantasize about having a swinger husband just so that I don't have to ever feel responsible for someone else's sexual happiness ever again. I'd rather be a wife who gives out hall passes. You know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking... No judgment to the, the the swinging lifestyle. What I think would be awesome would be is if you learned how to not feel responsible for someone else's sexual happiness before you chose to do the, the swinging thing, then then you would at least know that you were doing it because that's what you really wanted rather than you were doing it to avoid intimacy. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I'm being bossy. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want two male lovers at the same time. I think it's a vanilla kink, like not exactly mainstream, but really vanilla for some place like Fet Life. I want to marry someone who would get off on that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? My parents had depressed or worse parents. I know they did their best and couldn't teach me what they didn't know, but I get so mad at them for staying the way they are. My mom has no boundaries, and so I, I'm wondering why you would say that your environment was stable and safe. I think a lot of us, we think, well, if there was nobody was getting beat, and shit wasn't getting broken, and nobody was getting molested, then it must have been stable and safe. You know, if food was on the table. But um, anyway, continuing. I get so mad at them for staying the way they are. My mom has no boundaries and is overly responsible. My dad negates her feelings constantly, but it's a response from having a borderline cunt of a mother. I don't want their kind of a marriage. To my husband, who asked if he raped me, yes, you fucker, you fucking piece of insecure shit. I had major surgery and was struggling with breastfeeding and taking care of an infant with no help from anyone, especially not you, and the only thing you could focus on was how much sex you weren't getting. Fuck you. If you berate someone into having sex with you, it still counts as rape, even if they initiate it. Um... 
What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to find a devoted husband who has happy relationships and good boundaries. I am scared that I won't find it because I struggle myself with boundaries so much that I don't know what it looks like. Boy, I think you hit the nail right on the head there. Is I heard somebody say in a support group one time, be the change that you want. Be the partner that you are looking for. And um, that that makes sense to me. Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm ashamed. I told our told our couple's therapist about the postpartum sex. That's when my husband incredulously looked at me like I was crazy for making such a big deal out of the few painful times we had sex. I'm ashamed that I was so codependent that I felt like I had to have sex to save him as if that was even possible. How do you feel after writing things down? And, and to me, this is this is the byproduct of us being unwilling or not knowing how to advocate for ourselves and to have difficult conversations with somebody. This is what we do when we don't have that script. This is what it looks like. And I've lived this, man. You know, not these exact circumstances, but versions of this. You know, and I've been both a person that that was bearing the brunt of it and the person who was dealing out the brunt of it. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better. I want other women to know that they don't have to do this. They deserve a partner who can wait, who helps with the kids, that it is totally normal to be completely exhausted, that intimacy is important, but that if you're not being seen in your marriage is obviously going to affect your sex life. Ask for more and don't feel bad about demanding it. Marriage doesn't make your body your husband and your children's. It is still yours. Amen. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's normal, and it's also not okay. We are great mothers. We are great wives. We can ask for what we need, and we have to, but it's also okay to ask for someone who notices you so you don't have to spell everything out all the time. Also, if you're a stay-at-home, stay-at-home mom, remember that the value that you bring to your family is more than just quote, saving money on daycare, so much more. You are not the house slave. You do not have to be the maid, the nanny, the chef, and the butler. Take time off. If you can't afford to get something nice for yourself, make your partner give you alone time to read or take a bath or even shit by yourself. What a luxury. That is not too much to ask. Thank you so much for that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself vagina, 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 exclamation point. And she writes, after being suicidally depressed for over four years, I finally found something that works. One day I was biking with my kids and realized I'm not miserable. I am enjoying this. It made me tear up out of joy because I wasn't able to enjoy anything, even my own kids who I love so much for years. We were just doing ordinary things, not on an expensive vacation, and we were just walking down the street. It makes me so happy to remember that moment. I love moments like that. Thank you for that. And as somebody who has battled depression for years and years and years, that feeling when we get a little bit of connection to the universe and that gnawing feeling that happiness is somewhere else and and we can't rest until we find it, especially if it's a beautiful, sublime little moment. 
Oh, that's just the best. Thank you for sharing that. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Everett. And he writes, when I was 21, I decided to confront my dad on some problems I was having with him. We were sitting on the back porch talking and joking around like we always do. I was feeling angry because I had again come to him. I I had to again come to see him. I felt at the time like he did not make an effort to come see me. I was in the mindset if he could not make time for me, then why should I make time for him? We sat and my mind was racing. I did not know if I could open my heart to him, if he was going to feed me all the excuses of why he could not be there. I took a chance and I'm so glad that I did. I don't remember exactly what I said, but at the end of the day, it does not matter. I poured my heart out to him, telling him about some of the abuse that I went through at the hands of my stepfather, how I felt unwanted and unloved by my dad, and how when I needed him the most, he was nowhere to be found. My dad let me get it all out without a word, without saying a word. When I was done talking, I felt ashamed, and I was anticipating the explosion of anger, but it never came. He just held out his arms and hugged me and said three words, I am sorry. I don't think I ever hugged anyone as hard as I hugged my dad that day. It was such an amazing relief for someone to finally understand my pain and not make excuses. It was so nice to be heard. Today I am 24 and my dad and I have the best relationship. He's there with a joke when I need to laugh. He's there with advice when I need that too and everything in between. He's the dad I should have had, and I am so glad we have the relationship that we do. His undying support is one of the big reasons I've been able to heal as much as I have in the past three years. It goes to show you what a simple I'm sorry and the act of doing better can do for a person. That's so beautiful. And such a great example of the power of just listening and validating. You know, I think a lot of times when somebody wants to come and share about their pain, the parent often thinks, or anybody, thinks that this person is trying to leverage this quote-unquote wrong that they committed or was committed against them. But all that person really wants is to be heard. And I think so often there's just that lapse in communication between the two that one person thinks they're being attacked and the other person is just saying, hey, I want to be closer to you, but there's this thing that's blocking it. And if I don't speak my truth, it's going to stay stuck between us, and I don't want that because I love you. But we don't see that model for us, how to say that. Anyway. (laughs) Oh, my throat hurts. I hate being sick in the summer. It's so weird having a sore throat, and it's 105 outside. I'm going to go complain to Gracie. Anyway, I hope you guys like this episode. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone. And there is help out there. And thanks for listening. Mm
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.